Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Today, Simon Turpin is here with part two of his discussion on Adam, first and the last. Then a little later, Micah Van Hus will look inside another marginal mystery. Available for the first time, the entire Columbus, Ohio Prophecy Conference, all 12 speakers, 20 total presentations, one complete DVD set. Topics include secret societies, invisible war on the saints, Jewish roots of Christianity, the earth as it was, unveiling the Antichrist, one world update, and much more. Included in this complete set is Jonathan Kahn's presentation on the Josiah Manifesto. Order the complete Columbus Conference DVD set today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Here's Josh Davis and today's guest, author Simon Turpin. I'm privileged to be joined again by author Simon Turpin. He has written a book called Adam, First and the Last. Yesterday, we talked about the role of Scripture and taking the authority of Scripture literally when it comes to the first Adam, because if we don't understand the first Adam, we will misunderstand the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ. We're going to be speaking more and more about that on today's program. If you missed yesterday's, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it, because it lays a foundation for where we're going in today's program. Simon serves with the Answers in Genesis ministry, in the UK and does a wonderful job with them speaking, writing, and so much more. Simon, welcome back to Watchmen on the Wall. Thanks for having me back, Josh. It's good to be with you again. So why do we need to accept the supernatural creation of the first man, Adam? Especially for some of the people who may have missed yesterday's program. Can you spell some of that out for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think the reason we should accept the supernatural creation of Adam, Josh, is because it's presented to us in Scripture as real history. You know, when you read the opening chapters of Genesis, they're not taken as myth or poetry. Clear in the Hebrew text from the verb forms that are used that we were talking about real history. Um, This is confirmed from the, the writings of the apostles in the New Testament and even from the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels, where they all take Genesis naturally, they take it historically. Um, Jesus in Mark 10.6 talks about the fact that Adam, or man, was created at the beginning of creation. And so when you look in Genesis chapter 2, it's quite clear that God supernaturally creates Adam from the dust of the ground. And we know dust there isn't symbolic of something else, as many theologians would want to tell us, Mm. because Adam literally goes back to the dust of the ground when he dies. And so The creation of Adam is taken in the Bible as real history. Um, Paul actually defends this in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks of Adam as coming from the dust of the ground. In fact, he quotes Genesis 2-7 in 1 Corinthians 15 to refer to Adam's creation. So Paul obviously read this. Um, account of Adam's creation as real history. And if the Bible is presenting it, Josh, to us as real history, then we need to accept it as real history. Absolutely. And it is real history. It's written that way, as you so eloquently stated. 
the first day and the second day, the third day, the fourth day, and it just lays it out in such a literal way, and yet people want to spiritualize it. We get into all kinds of interpretive problems when we begin to spiritualize sections of Scripture, and unfortunately, this is happening with the creation account in Scripture as people try to blend what they see and what they call as scientific proof, although I think that true science will lead you to what the Scripture has to say, and I believe that science and Scripture definitely go hand in hand. They're not one or the other. You know, sometimes people try to make that argument, well, I follow science, you follow the Scripture. How do you see the role of science and Scripture actually coming together and agreeing with one another? Yeah, exactly. The first thing, Josh, that we need to do is define what we mean by science, because if you don't, then you might get in trouble when you're talking with people, because the word science just means knowledge. And there are different types of knowledge you can have, and what we call observational knowledge of the world, which is when you go out and you know use your five senses and observe the physical world around us. That observational knowledge actually gives us the technology that we're using now on the phone, that we use when we switch on our laptops, when you go to the doctors, when people send satellites up into space. That comes from observational science. But there's another form of science called historical science, which is your belief about the past when you weren't there to see what was going on. That sort of science is the science of evolution, the science of the Big Bang, that sort of thing, because those are belief systems when no scientist was there to see what was going on. Now, what scientists will try to do is look at evidence in the present and interpret it according to their presuppositions. Mm -hmm. But for Christians, we need to realize that we have no problem with science because, as I said in your previous episode, that when you look at history, science, modern science actually comes out of the Reformation in theology in the 1600s, the 1500s, 1600s. And many of those modern scientists, Josh, were Christians, people like Kepler, um, Galileo, Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, the founder of, of the modern scientific method. They, those men were all Christians, and they all believed in the authority of God's Word, and they had no problem. And so we, as Christians, Josh, should have no problem with accepting God's Word as true, but also what we see in the world around us. And of course, when we look at the world around us, we, we often, people talk about the 67th book of the Bible, and people like Hugh Ross say, well, nature is the 67th book of the Bible. Well, actually, that's not true, because we need to remember that the world around us is fallen, it's cursed, and it's not actually a book. It's not propositional. It doesn't contain truth in that sense like mm -hmm. the Bible does. And so we need to re read the world around us in light of God's inspired Word, um, which isn't cursed, which is infallible, inerrant, it's true, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself confirmed. And so as Christians, we have no problem with science. We need to define what science is and what science isn't. And actually, when we understand science, it does not contradict what we read in the Scriptures. That's a very important distinction that you draw there, and, and thank you for that. Friends, we're visiting with author Simon Turpin. He serves the Lord with the Answers in Genesis ministry in the UK, and we're discussing his wonderful book, Adam, First and the Last. You can pick up a copy by calling us at 
1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or visit our website at swrc.com. That's swrc.com. In the book, you spend a lot of time talking about the last Adam. Who is the last Adam? How does Scripture identify the last Adam? Yeah, I mentioned this a few times, but it's worth going over again. That phraseology, the last Adam, comes, Josh, from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where in that specific chapter, he's obviously dealing with the physical resurrection of the dead. And he talks about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised physically from the dead. And obviously, the reason Paul spends a lot of time talking about that is because people in the church in Corinth who had maybe come, who had come from a background where they grew up influenced by Greek philosophy, had a hard time believing in a physical resurrection from the dead because they believed the body was bad and that the spirit was good and that when you die, your spirit would just float off and you didn't want to be rejoined to your body, which is why a lot of those people in Corinth struggled with the resurrection of the dead. But Paul didn't have that false dichotomy. We don't see the body as bad and the spirit as good. You know, God originally created a very good world and he created body and spirit together. And so Paul there deals with that reality of a physical resurrection of the dead. But then he goes on to talk about how that reality is rooted in creation and what God did at creation. And specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he uses the phrase, the first man, Adam. He talks about the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for Paul, there was one head of the human race, Adam, to begin with, and there's another head of the human race, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll hear people say, Josh, they'll talk about Jesus as the second Adam, but that's not actually a biblical term. Paul uses the phraseology, the last Adam, for a very good reason, because there's never going to be another Adam. Mm. One be a third Adam, the one fourth Adam. Jesus is the last Adam because he dealt with the problem that Adam brought into the world, sin and death, on the cross. As I said before, there are two heads of the race. You're either in Adam, according to Paul, or you are in Christ. But Jesus Christ is the last Adam. So that's biblical terminology from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, showing that there is indeed a physical resurrection from the dead, from the Lord Jesus Christ. But as believers, we will also be physically resurrected from the dead at the end of the age and being given new physical bodies. As we talked about theistic evolution, that there is a problem for those guys because, you know, many, many of them will reject Adam to begin with, but then why then would they believe in the reality of a physical resurrection from the dead? Because Mm. guess what? Secular scientists do not believe in a future physical resurrection of the dead. So if you're going to reject the physical creation of Adam from the dust of the ground in Genesis because of so-called scientific reasons, then why would you believe in a future resurrection of the dead? Because secular scientists would not agree with you on that, but we can trust in the reality of Scripture when it comes to this issue, because it does speak about those things. What separates the Lord Jesus Christ from all the other deities, 
all the other worldviews that are out there. There are many different realities when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and other religious worldviews, because if you look at the founders of all the other religions, whether it be Muhammad, whether it be Confucius or whoever, all those men are still in the grave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ is resurrected and he's seated at the right hand of God, ruling the nations right now. And so there's a big difference. But another difference is in the claims Jesus made, Jesus, if you look at the culture today, because of the influence of books and movies like the Da Vinci Code, mm-hmm. um, people think Jesus was just another prophet or a good teacher, you know, a moralistic sort of prophet. But Jesus' claims in the gospel is actually that he is the Son of God. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. And so when you look at the claims of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he, 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 he is the Son of God, he is the creator of all things, no other person on the planet has ever claimed that, not only claimed that, but backed it up yes. through his life, through his teaching, through his miracles, and most importantly, through his death and resurrection, which he predicted to his disciples um, before he went to the cross, before he even suffered. He told them that he was going to the cross, he was going to Jerusalem, and that he would die and suffer. Then three days later, he would rise from the dead. No one in history has ever predicted that or made the claim that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And so there's the big difference between the Lord Jesus and all other religions in the world today. And so what do you say to someone who says, well, you Christians are following Jesus, but we're following this other being, this other God, this other religion, this other figure, whatever it may be. You know, you're going up your mountain. I'm going up my mountain. We're all going to meet at the top. How do you answer someone who asks that kind of a question or makes that kind of a statement to you? The thing to do is evaluate the claims of, let's say, if you're talking to a Muslim, the Quran. Obviously, as Christians, we're going to uphold the truth of God's words. And so, actually, if you look at the Quran, the Quran actually testifies to the truth of the Torah, to the truth of the gospel. You know, a lot of Muslims today will bring up the argument that the gospels have been corrupted, so on and so forth. But that's actually not the argument of the Quran. The argument of the Quran is that God's word is being preserved, that it is trustworthy, it is true. In fact, it tells the Muslim people to go to the people of the book and to ask them. And so the Quran itself doesn't see the Bible as being corrupted. It's a, it's a modern-day Muslim argument. But then you can evaluate that the claims of, of Muhammad, who was a prophet, and the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ made the claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life. In order to know God, the Father, we need to know the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because people make that claim there's all these different ways up to the mountain, which is obviously not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying there's only one true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth, who has revealed himself as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. Jesus made the specific claim, unless you believe in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He didn't say you'll get to heaven another way. He said you will die in your sins. And when you look at that specific phrase in there, I am he, in the Greek, that's ego me, and it comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament translation in Greek of the divine name Yahweh, it is ego me, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying he is 
Yahweh of the Old Testament. And so unless you believe he is that God, then you will die in your sins. He's not saying there is another way to the Father um, to believe in apart from himself. The only way to know God the Father is through the Son, the Lord Jesus um, Christ. And so when you look at the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you look at the claims of the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, you don't see <laughs> that way out because Psalm 96.5 tells us the gods of the nations are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens and the earth. So there's always a distinction between the false gods in the Bible and the one true and living God. It doesn't mm-hmm. give us that option of going up the mountain in different directions and we'll all meet at the top and sing a lovely song when we get there. No, that's not the truth. This is why, Josh, we take the gospel to the nations, because we want to see people come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just, just like myself, just like yourself, Josh, we were once dead in our sins, and then we heard the good news of the gospel, and, and, and our eyes were open to that truth, and we came to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be thankful for the people who brought us the gospel, and we want to do the same. We want to take that gospel, that saving message to the nations. Yes, absolutely. And that's the heartbeat of our ministry. And I know Answers in Genesis, with whom you serve, has that same heartbeat and is doing a wonderful job to that end. Friends, we're visiting with author Simon Turpin, who does serve the Lord with the Answers in Genesis ministry in the UK. And he's written a wonderful book, Adam First and the Last. You can pick up a copy of that by calling us at 1-800-652-1144 or by visiting us online at swrc.com. You know, the only way for Jesus to be good is if he is God. And the claims that Jesus made to be able to forgive sins and all the rest, a good man wouldn't go around making those kinds of claims if he could not back them up. And many people look at Jesus as being a good man, a good moral teacher. He did some nice things. He said some nice things. But all that nonsense about being God. I, I don't accept that. How would you respond to that kind of a question, Simon? Yeah, again, it's, it's pointed back to the Word of God, to the Gospels, and saying to people, look, go and look at Jesus' claims, because like you said, Josh, Jesus didn't just claim to be a good man. In fact, many atheists today will say, well, look at the teachings of Jesus. He obviously wasn't a good man, because what they're thinking about is Jesus' teaching on hell, because Jesus does talk about hell more than anyone else in the Gospels. And they would say, well, he's not a good man. He talks about death and punishment and hell and, and those sorts of things. But of course, the atheist doesn't have an absolute standard to judge whether something is good or evil. And right. So I would point out to people, look, just go to the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, which are a reliable historical eyewitness testimonies. And I talk about this in the book of the apostles, of those people who walked with Jesus, who were taught by Jesus, and listen to his teaching. Jesus talks about, you could inherit all things in this life. If you forfeit your soul, what will that gain you? Yes. And so Jesus wasn't just a good teacher in the respect, in the way people think of it, oh, he's teaching some good things about loving your neighbor and being kind to your enemy and praying for your enemy. Yes, he did teach those things. That's absolutely true. And as Christians, we do love our neighbors. We do pray for our enemies. We pray for those who persecute you. But he also taught the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is Yahweh, God, who created heaven and earth, and that you can't get to God the Father except 
through him. And so he has that claim of exclusivity and so many other claims in the Bible. And so the people who are wondering about Jesus' claim is just to be a good teacher need to go actually look and read the rest of the Gospels. And actually, I spent a lot of time listening to people who made that claim. And when you push them on this, they just want the Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount mm-hmm. and in the teaching of his Beatitudes. But actually, they don't read the end of the Beatitudes when Jesus talks about false teaching, when Jesus talks about there being a broad way and there being a narrow way. <laughs> yes. And so people tend to be inconsistent and in how they take the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're wondering about the Lord Jesus, if you're thinking and, tr- and considering him and who he is, then just for yourself, go and read his teachings in the four Gospels. And yes. See for yourself. That's so true. That's good advice. And friends, we hope that you will heed that because as author Simon Turpin tells us, the Gospel begins in creation. It begins in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. You need to get a copy of this book to help you stand firm against the false teachers and defend the divine creation of Adam as true biblical history. The book is called Adam, First and Last, and you can pick up a copy by calling us at 1-800-652-1144 or by visiting us online at swrc.com. Simon, thank you so much for joining me on yesterday and today's Watchman on the Wall radio program. Thank you, Josh. It's been really good to be with you. Are you prepared to defend the biblical account of Adam as a living man formed by God? You will be after you read Simon Turpin's book entitled, Adam, First and the Last. In Adam, First and the Last, Simon Turpin, former director of Answers in Genesis UK, reveals why understanding Adam to have been the first man created is critical for a consistent theological understanding of the biblical message of creation, the fall, and redemption. Order in Adam, first and the last, when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order on our website, swrc.com. Time now to look inside another marginal mystery with author and speaker, Micah Van Hus. Welcome to the program today. I'm your host, Micah Van Hus. I am the producer of Marginal Mysteries at Southwest Radio Ministries. And today, we're going to talk about Freemasonry. So what did the Freemasons have to do with the founding of the United States? Now, many of our founding fathers were Freemasons, including George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, James Monroe, Major General Henry Knox, Paul Revere, John Hancock, Chief Justice John Marshall, Samuel Adams, and John Jay. Also, 40% of the officers in the American Revolutionary War were Freemasons. 13 signers of the Constitution and 9 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Freemasons. So, did they orchestrate the American Revolution? What was their goal for the New World? Are the Freemasons secretly in charge of America today? Sir Francis Bacon was Lord Chancellor of England under King James I in the early 17th century. Now, he played a leading role in establishing the British colonies in North America, particularly Virginia. Now, Bacon dreamed of a free democracy and a utopian society of enlightenment. He, along with the Freemasons, believed that the eminent country in North America was to be the hearth of the new world order, a new Atlantis, a place to bring back the old gods. 
the United States Marine Corps, in which I served eight years, was created by Freemasons in Tun Tavern, the birthplace of American Masonic teachings. The Green Dragon Tavern in Boston, Massachusetts, is a Masonic lodge and was also the location in which the colonists plotted the Boston Tea Party. It seems that colonists shared a love of secrecy, beer, and kicking the crap out of tyrants. Now, an interesting fact that not many people know is that there were two veins of Freemasonry vying for control of our nation's founding ideals. Now, Freemason Benjamin Franklin pushed for a universalist based Masonic ideology of enlightenment in the colonies. An ideology similar to Helena Blavatsky's theosophy, that believe that mankind is evolving into enlightenment and will one day ascend into godhood and leave earth to become gods in the cosmos. Even the rotunda ceiling of the U.S. Capitol building today is the painting, The Apotheosis of Washington. It depicts George Washington's ascension into godhood. In the painting, he is sitting with the pagan Roman gods. The painting is surrounded by 72 stars, the same number of gods given dominion of the earth in Deuteronomy 32 after the Tower of Babel incident in Scripture. Now, a more Christian version of Freemasonry, however, was supported by General and President George Washington. He desired that a nation be founded on the Christian God of the Bible. Now, this struggle between Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and Freemasonry is apparent in the wording of our founding documents. Our Declaration of Independence, for instance, uses three different references to God. Thomas Jefferson uses the term nature's God, creator, and divine providence, leading to disagreements among scholars today who erringly misinterpret the freedom of religion in our Constitution's First Amendment. Are Freemasons in control of the United States today? Now, while Freemasonry had a profound and obvious influence on the founding of our nation, my opinion is that the powers behind them never succeeded in fully controlling our country. Now, today, while the globalist experiment is succeeding in Europe, the United States continues to be a thorn in their side. The powers that be need to destroy the American middle class to achieve their goal of the Great Reset. Canada is a prime example of what will happen if we as Americans ever give up our right to keep and bear arms. We will lose our freedoms and be swept into the globalist tyranny and oppression. Now, Freemason symbols are obvious in the architecture of Washington, D.C. and in the design of our currency. In 1782, Congress adopted the Great Seal of the United States. Atop the Freemason Grand Lodge is an unfinished 13-step pyramid, just like the one on the Great Seal. The obverse and reverse sides of the Great Seal on the dollar bill appear on the dollar bill. In 1797, Freemasonry adopted the Eye of Providence as one of their common symbols. Now, are these symbols on the U.S. dollar bill a nod to Freemasons or the Illuminati. What we've talked about today is part of my chapter on the New Atlantis, the United States of America and Freemasonry. You can find that chapter in my new book, Secret Societies, and today you can pre-order that book at marginalmysteries.com. Again, you can pre-order my new book, Secret Societies, marginalmysteries.com. Feel free to go there. We've got links to our socials, links to our YouTube page where we do all kinds of awesome videos on all the mysteries of God's universe. But again, check us out at MarginalMysteries.com. Are you prepared to defend the biblical account of Adam as a living man formed by God? You will be after you read Simon Turpin's book, Adam, First and the Last. Order your copy today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order on our website, swrc.com. Adam, 
first and the last by Simon Turpin. 1-800-652-1144. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.